Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of Entrepreneur on Fire, and you're listening to Paul Kemp, the App Guy Podcast. The App Guy Podcast. Straight from your host, Paul, the App Guy. Sharing his app entrepreneur journey with you for your enjoyment. The App Guy Podcast. to another episode of the app guide podcast this is the podcast where we get some of the best guests from around the world to help inspire us in what we're doing so if you're an indie app developer a business owner entrepreneur whatever it is if even if you're working and you want uh, to aspire to be a successful app developer then this is the podcast for you because you'll be inspired by the stories of our guests the things that they have to contribute And today I have just an amazing story ahead of us. Uh, I really do think this is going to be a great episode. Uh, His name is Dave Baggett, and uh, he is the founder of Inky, uh, which is an app. Uh, If you go to Inky.com, recommend you go and do that now, Inky.com. This is an app where uh, people like our uh, publications like Forbes said that it's changed the way that we interact with email and it will change in the future. TechCrunch, working to deliver practical innovations that will make email more usable. Lifehacker, a simple, super simple interface with a focus on only the messages that matter to you. Um, Wonderful that you've tackled this big issue of email. So Dave, it's a warm welcome to the App Guy podcast. Thanks, Paul. Great to be here. So uh, we're going to talk a lot about the app. Uh, I've uh, been using it. I think it's, um, well, I'm really keen to learn about what it can do and what you have planned for the future. But in the meantime, I know that you've uh, had a successful entrepreneurial journey so far. So perhaps you can take a few minutes to just tell us uh, your background and uh, what it is you've you've sure. been doing, doing up to this point. Yeah, I was one of those uh, programmers who started out really young. I started around age seven. Uh, I was one of the fortunate few my age who had a computer then. My father was actually an electrical engineer, and he literally built our first computer from parts. It was, a com- it was made by a company called Heathkit, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was back in the early 70s, you know, mid-70s when you actually had to uh, assemble your own machine. <laughs> so oh, wow. I started out on that, and um, I actually had the same process there as Pac-Man, the, the arcade game. Okay. So, kinda- <laughs> but, uh, so I, you know, I started early, and then I ended up doing computer science at the University of Maryland. Um, where I grew up, and then I went to MIT for graduate school. At MIT, I actually met a couple guys who had been making video games for many years. Um, even when they were kids, they were selling games. And uh, they went on to found a company called Naughty Dog, and I was the first employee. So I really cut my teeth on professional programming, uh, doing games. And the first game we did was Crash Bandicoot, which ended up being kind of like the Sonic or Mario, the mascot game for the Sony PlayStation, which it's hard to imagine now, but Sony PlayStation was a new entrant and really an underdog um, versus Sega and Nintendo. And we were in the right place at the right time in the sense that we did a great game, but it also fit this need that Sony had for a mascot, you know, a cute character that would appeal to all ages. Um, and so I, I worked on the, uh, on the code for that. I was one of the two programmers, along with Andy Gavin, on the first game, and then one of four on the second game. So I was sort of phase one, and I went from games to a totally different space, travel. Um, I knew some people at MIT also who ended up founding another company called ITA Software, and I joined them as a co-founder in 1998, 
And there we worked on what we called low fare search, what they call in the industry low fare search. But essentially, it's just someone wants to go from point A to point B. What are the best options for them to take, uh, flight options for them to take? We looked at how that problem was solved in the existing systems, and we thought, we're computer scientists. We can do a better job. And with the usual hubris and naivete, not knowing anything about the complexity of the industry, we dove in. And a short five years later, we had a right. saleable product. <laughs> um, and then we, uh, you know, so we then, we then ended up selling it to, uh, licensing it to Orbitz and Kayak and a bunch of the airline websites. Um, and, you know, eventually built up a, a nice business and, and sold that to Google in 2010. And, you know, as part of that, I, I got some money out of the company. And so I decided to think about what I could fund myself with a small team that would really make a big difference in the world, even if it was a, you know, a small difference for a lot of people, let's put it that way. And I looked at things like search and operating systems and browsers, and those are big and everybody uses them all the time, but they're pretty unassailable for a small team. And alternatively, I looked at mail and thought, well, mail's really screwed up. Most people really hate their mail. They get massive amounts of email. They're, they're frustrated with their overload problem. And it seemed like at the time something that a reasonably small but talented team could make a dent in. And, you know, as with ITA, I think I underestimated a bit how hard it would be. But long story short, you know, we've been working on Inky for a few years now and have it at least to the level of, of a good MVP for, for a male client that we think is actually smart as opposed to just being a passive onlooker in your struggle against inbox overload. We think it can actually help you organize your mail for you. And that's that's really the vision for the product. What an amazing story, Dave. And uh, I know that you're inspiring uh, many of the uh, app tribe that listen to this. You know, uh, I mean, we've all seen the social network where uh, the, all great stuff seems to come out of MIT. And uh, it seems like your past uh, has, you've, you owe a lot to the people that you met at MIT. And uh it just it must have um, it must have been a great time to uh, yeah be associated. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean to that point, I often say to people that when I met Andy and Jason, I met Andy first. Actually, he was the coder of the two. Jason was more the artist of the two. And when I met them, I was really struck by, in retrospect, they were kind of it was kind of like meeting um, John and Paul of the Beatles, and you know they just were just so incredibly impressive. And I knew that even if they didn't create the world's greatest game, they were going to do something really successful. They were going to extract the, the most that the opportunity offered. And so I, I thought, well, maybe I could be George Harrison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I... But it was really a magical thing to, to be around so many smart people. And especially, you know, MIT has a lot of academic smart people. And um, what appealed to me about Andy and Jason was these guys were incredibly brilliant but also very pragmatic and that just appealed to my entrepreneurial spirit so, so i would encourage everyone listening right now to look around you and, and and just figure out who the smart people are because uh you know partnerships like you had uh really do i mean it was such a great time as well i know we've had a recent anniversary of tetris which is quite remarkable mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. i know there's a lot of stories where the uh creator of tetris didn't he was a russian guy didn't actually make any money on the uh the game for years if i don't even know if he ever made money on it but uh 
uh, yeah, you obviously uh, associated yourself with the right people in the right place at the right time and did some great coding and, and built a great game. Well, and games are tough. I mean, games now, we did a triple, a tri- called a triple A game is, is the term that's used in the industry for, you know, the highest budget blockbuster goal game. And our, our game, Crash One, came out in 1996 and that had a million and a half dollar budget. So if you figure now the budgets for AAA games are in excess of 100 million and the teams are 400 people, we did Crash 1 with 7, uh, you, you can see how the industry has moved tremendously since 1997, which really isn't that long ago, but it's moved orders of magnitude in terms of the budgets and team sizes. Well, it's totally over, one, it's overtaken Hollywood now, hasn't it, really? I mean, the yeah, Grand, Grand really Theft has. Auto, you know, those releases are... Uh, in the billions uh, c- compared to the the opening weekends for some of the big blockbusters for the films. yeah and you've got things like Call of Duty and you know even more to me more interestingly um, World of Warcraft League of Legends Clash of Clans I don't know why they all have something of something names but they seem to <laughs> I mean those things are just cash machines so you know the fascinating thing is that the at the same time the budgets for these games are much bigger the teams are bigger. The potential opportunity is much, much larger than it was even when we did Crash. I actually met one of the guys who uh, at Rovio who who works on Angry Birds, and I asked him, "Well, how many SKUs have you guys shipped of Angry Birds?" Thinking it would be you know 100 million or something, and he said two billion. Now, if you figure, Crash Bandicoot sold about five. That was about five percent of the games sold in 1996 was Crash, and we we sold tens of millions. You know, so you figure that was an absolute world-beating blockbuster for the time, and that was tens of millions. And now, a blockbuster game like a Minecraft or an Angry Birds is shipping literally billions of units. It's just staggering. Yeah, I guess the distribution platform as well has uh, become a lot easier, uh, especially with iOS and uh, the world. You know, the, the world iTunes store. Yeah, it's easy to buy. It's easy to install, and I think um, casual games are much more saleable in a format where they're just electronically downloaded in, in one second on your phone than they were in the era when we were doing Crash when you'd have to go to a store and literally buy a shrink-wrapped box with a disc in it. So, so Dave, what I love about your story is uh, that, so you ended up disrupting the travel industry. That took you a lot of time, but you ended up disrupting that. Then you eventually sold out to Google, and then you started to look at other things that you could do, uh, for example, search, <laughs> which... Uh, right, right, yeah. Uh, I, and uh, But you've, you've uh, I guess, fallen on the problem of mail. Um, it is a real problem. I uh, know that we all uh, suffer from uh, email overload. Uh, not the, you know, we, we have these same priorities on emails that come to us, whether they're from uh, Groupon or whether they're from our mother, you know, so. That's right, right, uh, exactly. Well, well, how did you, t- I mean, this, this show really does uh, uh, f- find problems that the uh, creators have solved. And uh, so how did you tackle this big issue? What, what, what sort of, what was your thinking? Well, I'm not sure we've solved it yet. We're certainly on the path to solving it. I think we've got a good start, but you know, I can't say that it's it's done. Um, it'll take quite a while to get it to the point where I would say it's solved. But the basic basic idea is, you know, I had a background in linguistics, which isn't learning a bunch of languages. That's what most people think. It's actually studying language language in the abstract. And so I had a background in linguistics and computational linguistics and some machine learning. And so. A lot of the academic literature in both those areas had been focused on understanding text. And it seemed to me like we were getting to the point where some of the academic stuff was ready to be put into real practice. And obviously, 
Google's done a lot of that with information extraction with their search engine and with Google Translate. Uh, I thought about doing that for the mail context where, as you said, you get a message from your mother and it's treated the same by your mail client as a message from Groupon. Clearly, that's completely messed up, right? Obviously, in the case of a Groupon, you know, he recognizes already, oh, that's a daily deal. That's a different status and it has a different intent. And we'll automatically put that in what we call a daily deal smart view. Whereas a message from your mom, that's something that, you know, obviously it may be more more or less relevant at the moment, but it's certainly different status from something generated by a robot. You know, obviously, and you you know, and you can tell by looking at the messages which ones are handwritten, which ones are total spam, and which ones are generated generated by robots. So, I started thinking about about this a few years ago that if you could at least have the mail program classify the mail as it came in, as to its intent, maybe it's maybe it's meaning at some level, maybe it could extract what vertical it applies to, is it about shopping, or is it about travel, or is it a, is it a personal message? And so you can see in Inky now, we've started to do that. We have various classifiers that run on every message that comes in, and look at the text of the message, and look at other properties, and figure things out about the, the message, and we assign these tags to them, like hashtag social or hashtag deal. At the same time, you know, so that's kind of one one axis of development. The other one is this notion of relevance. And there, again, coming back to the message from your mom, the fact that your mom is your mom is something that you wouldn't think a computer could figure out, but actually it can do a pretty good job of figuring out who the important people are, who the important relationships are. Frequency of sending and that sort of thing are important, but there are other signals in there. And actually there's a paper that uh, somebody wrote about extracting the org chart of a company from their emails. And you actually can do a pretty good job of figuring out who is whose boss. If someone asks to go on holiday and get permission for that, that means they're probably a subordinate, right? So there are these cues in the text that the program can, can look for. And so the idea is to build in a lot of this intelligence and to make the program more like a helper or an assistant and less like a passive observer. Yeah, so just and, on and that, actually, Dave, that's obviously touching on a, a fairly uh, interesting subject of privacy, uh, given that we're in this climate of a distrust towards governments, so the NSA. Mm-hmm. Uh, how mm-hmm. are you dealing with that issue? Uh, because I'm guessing that, you, you know, to be able to categorize and, and sort the mail, then obviously you need to have some kind of uh, system that reads it. Uh, so right. so how, do you, how did you touch upon the issue of privacy? Well, it's a really good question because I, and I'm glad you asked actually, because I've emphasized this from the very beginning. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure whether the emphasis, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm not sure whether the emphasis on it has a market value yet. You're right that people perceive it as an issue and they talk a lot about it. I'm not sure that preserving people's privacy is helpful for your market share yet. We'll see. But what we've done since the beginning is made this commitment that we're not going to have our employees have access to your mail. We're just not going to set it up in any way so that we can read it. What that means is that all of the analysis of the messages has to happen on your device or your computer. So when we when we say Inky reads your mail, we really mean the Inky running on your phone is reading your mail and not telling us what your mail says. And In fact, your Inky talks directly to your mail servers without intermediating it through us. So we never see the traffic between you and your mail server. Now, Inky will tell us things like he's got these contacts and it'll store things about your settings and so on so that when you install Inky on a new machine, it's not like Inky has no idea who you are. 
we want Inky to know who you are and know what your accounts are. We just don't want to have your mail be accessible to our employees. Well, that sounds like a, a massively sensible solution. I mean, personally, uh, I would be happy with uh, anyone reading my email because, you know, it's like not very interesting. <laughs> so, uh, you know, but, and especially when with mail, uh, if, if example, like, you know, if you get Google Gmail, uh, being able to uh, streamline the uh, mail, reduce the spam, then I guess we're, we we just have to accept that uh, there's a lower level of privacy. But what, what a sensible solution, though, in terms of your, your solution to that whole thing of uh, privacy. Well, and in fact, I, what I encourage people to do is think about in terms of, don't think just in terms of cloud versus installed app. Think about where the various things are happening where does the computation occur and where's the data stored? And if you look at something like Google search, that can't run on your laptop. The reason it can't run on your laptop is not because your laptop's too slow to run the search, it's because the data is too big. The entire index of the web doesn't fit in your laptop. So they have to do that server side. They have to do that in the cloud. In contrast, if you look at mail though, you know, the the, the companies that house your mail will argue they need to be able to read it because they need to be able to index it. That's not really true because, in fact, they could store it encrypted in the cloud and then have the indexing happen on your device, which is what we do. Um, and so when we offer mail for people, when we let people store mail with us, which we don't yet, but someday we will, we'll have an option where they can store it encrypted. And then we still can't read it, even though we hold it for them, we house it for them. Um, and I think that it's somewhat to the advantage of a lot of the big companies to blur this distinction because the more data they have, the more they can learn about improving their algorithms and so on and targeting you for advertisements. But I don't think there's any reason long term why small communications like emails have to be stored server side in any way that the employees of the company can access at all. That sounds like it's a competitive advantage down the road for you, uh, Dave. That I hope it becomes one because I think, you know, just in terms of, of public good, I think it's better if people have privacy than not. Um, but as I said earlier, I have to admit, I'm not sure that it matters enough to people to influence their buying decisions yet. Yeah. Uh, so just just moving on, actually, I mean, uh, what is incredible to me is that many people listening, if they had your level of success, I mean, the ultimate grail, the, the holy grail of, of all the things that we do is, is selling out to Google, which you've got uh, <laughs> as, you know, your, uh, your flag of achievement. And... Uh, you know, I'm just so, I guess a lot of us would think, well, we would uh, go and enjoy our money, go and sit on a beach somewhere and, uh, you know, drink tequilas, whatever it is. <laughs> uh, so what what keeps you driven to just, you know, keep going, keep moving forward, keep problem solving and just keep delivering some awesome disruptive stuff to the, to the world? Well, I mean, I think the, the one definition of victory is selling your company to Google. Another more interesting one is being the next Google. Right. So obviously, when Mark Zuckerberg conceived of Facebook, he wasn't thinking that, oh, I hope I can sell this to Google. He was thinking, I want to have a billion people use my service. And in the same way, I'd, I'd like to do something that has an impact on a very large number of people. Now, I often say it's not like curing cancer, so we're not talking about saving the world here, but making a billion people's lives a little easier, I think, is a really compelling goal. And so when I looked around for the next big thing to work on, travel's pretty big, but email is bigger. I mean, there are 4 billion or so people using email. 
and it's growing, and there's no sign that it's going to abate. So that's really what motivates me is to is to potentially change the way people interact with their messaging, so that they just have more. So it's just less irritating to go through the inbox. I mean, I think I just spent so much time talking to people about what frustrates them in the world of computing, which is obviously the one that I know and can contribute to. And so many people highlighted this inbox overload problem. And I thought, you know, well, it's hard. Email's hard, obviously, but it didn't seem, it didn't seem intractably hard, like, say, trying to do better search or trying to do a better operating system or something like that. Yeah, you know, and you think about uh, the future for email and with the evolution of technology, what is possible? I mean, already I get a lot of my email read by Siri which, uh, on my iPhone, which I think is great. Mm -hmm. And so you can imagine a future where uh, you um, you just ask for a summary of your emails and then you have some a nice young lady read out <laughs> your important things right and it becomes more like of a almost like an assistant an old-fashioned assistant i guess uh who used to read the memos to you and stuff so <laughs> well it also may remind you proactively i mean one thing that inky does already which is which is kind of a cool little trick is it tra tracks all your packages for you by extracting it notices something as a shipping confirmation it extracts the package tracking number and it goes on your behalf and figures out the status of the package and it actually pops up a message saying hey your package was delivered that you is know, cool that's that. that's really cool i mean imagine doing that for every kind of important mail you know it notices for example i mean we don't do this yet but this is the kind of thing it notices okay well he bought a flight to go from london to new york and now the flight's canceled let's just tell him right now hey by the way your flight was canceled you know imagine you know we think that your mail program shouldn't just be again it's passive observer it should actually understand what's going on in your life and, and actually proactively help you. And I think what's going to happen over the next five years is we'll start to see more and more of this contextual awareness and semi-intelligence starting to creep into more and more applications. Yeah, it's so needed. And, you know, it's a big focus, I know, with Google being uh, Google now and with um, I guess Apple are trying to get on the bandwagon with um, their latest release of iOS 8, where you get Siri. You can you can activate Siri uh, just by voice. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, hands-free kind of a uh, operation and and more contextual um, uh, intelligence on your uh, communications. And it sounds just perfect. So we don't have to think <laughs> about the email of uh, that's given us the tickets for our flight it just automatically knows uh, and it calculates like whether uh, how long it's going to take us to get to the airport knows which airport we need to go to uh, give us some yeah really really cool stuff um dave so dave before we're, we're sort of running out of time i guess we've got about eight minutes left and one of my popular things that i like to ask guests is that we do like to think of uh, app ideas on this show mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, i guess i'd I'd love to ask if you do, do you have any ideas for apps that you're willing to share with us, a bunch of indie app developers? Uh, if not, then we, we tend to talk about uh, pain points that you're uh, suffering in your business right now and maybe flesh out a potential idea for an app. I mean, I think, you know, one of the really serious pain points that I'm sure all of your listeners feel is this, the opacity of the app stores, the the sense that, you know, it takes days to make a change and push it to the app store. 
the sense that you have no idea whether you're going to be rejected for some arbitrary change or not. Often if you get rejected, it's six days to resolve it because you go back in the hopper and it <laughs> gets assigned to another reviewer. Yeah. I think, you know, I really like the space around analytics, you know, app store analytics, and I think it's going to absolutely explode. Um, whether that's a mobile app or whether that's a desktop app, I'm not sure. But the idea that the the app store becomes a little more transparent and that the data becomes available to people to mine it and present it to app creators, I think it just has to happen. I mean, and you saw that a little bit with the iOS 8 keynote. They talked about they're going to reboot the app store, and it's just so badly needed, I think, because you know we see all kinds of weird data in the app store. We don't understand it, and we have no way to figure out why. Why, I mean, why are we the number one app in Guatemala? Who knows? We don't know. <laughs> right, okay. I mean, it'd be nice to know, you know, what's going That's on. That's the encryption and, uh, feature, I think, probably on your... <laughs> it could be. I mean, but, you know, and, and the thing is that, that uh, this has been really, really optimized in the web space. Look at things like Google Analytics and Mixpanel and Kissmetrics and... So I think there's a there's an analog for that. And then, yeah, and we, we had the founder of, of uh, Kissmetrics on this show recently, actually, Neil Patel. And, uh, yeah, I think that's just an infinite growth area right now, especially around these mobile installs. I mean, for example, we don't know if we if we buy an ad on Facebook that says, "Hey, download Inky," it has an auto unsubscribe feature, really targeted to some demographic. We actually don't know whether someone installed it because of that or not. And you know, it's the same problem with you know if Toyota buys a bunch of ads. Do they know someone saw the ad and that's why they went and bought a Camry? And I think this kind of connection between the ad buyers or the app creators and the results uh, it is just absolutely going to be huge in terms of value creation. Yeah, I thought we'd got over those days where you know TV adverts you were, were very hard to measure. And so they just threw a lot of money at it. But uh, no, I absolutely agree that there is a problem with the app store, especially with you know, the Apple app store where... Uh, I just had a, t- two or three months ago an app rejected because I had Flurry Analytics in there and uh, Flurry had to do a, a rapid update uh, to overcome some new rule that had gone into the app store. So that meant, you know, two, three weeks delay. And uh, it's just, yeah, the uh, we, we had a good chat with an app store optimization specialist on this show actually a while ago. And uh, uh, even he said that it's just hard to predict uh, what, what it is you need to do to, to rank and to get out, you know, get up the app store and uh, to figure it all out. But uh, some more transparency would be very much needed. Yeah, and I can tell you just, I mean, I've got experience going back, you know, 15, 20 years, and this is probably the most opacity I've seen. I mean, even with games, it was true that you'd have to, you you got one chance to ship the game. You couldn't slipstream changes in easily because that actually required, you know, a manufacturing change. Um but we still could have, we still could get data on what was going on in the channel, and it just seems surprisingly difficult to get a get a handle on that now. The other general area I really am intrigued by is this iBeacon stuff and this locality uh, locality capability, where indoors, you know, the the app can know where you are and know about your geographical context. And I'm really curious to see how widely this kind of interior iBeacon sort of stuff gets deployed. Because I think as soon as it gets deployed in any serious, to any serious degree, there's going to be an explosion of these, of these hyper-local apps that know, oh, you know, you're in this store and 
therefore you can get this offer. But Amazon would like to steal you as a customer. I was thinking Amazon straight away. I mean, so this is going to be really exciting to see see what happens. And they're going to have all kinds of new, entirely new categories of apps that are built around this this micro location stuff. It is based Minority Report, the film Minority Report. Finally, it's, it's, it seems to be coming true that, uh, you know, you can have yeah. these uh, completely targeted ads as you're walking around town. <laughs> so. Yeah, I'm not sure it's a good thing, but obviously it will work through as a as a civilization <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how much of this we want. Um, but but clearly there's there's incredible power there. Um, and you'll see it reflected in everything. It wouldn't be, won't just be commerce, although that'll be a big, big area. It'll be also in games. I mean, there'll be some really interesting hyper-local games that, that people come up with. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. You add a physical feature to a game. There's an idea, uh, you know, using iBeacon so that you almost like do some kind of treasure hunt in your local city uh, where you... Yeah. I think uh, BMW did something quite successful, actually, in Berlin where they used um, ge- geolocation to track down... Uh, the, the person with this thing on their phone at the end of two weeks won a won a, a car, um, but they could have that st- stolen from them if uh, another iPhone user came up within a 500 meter radius or something. So, <laughs> so it was like a bunch of people running around trying to escape and you had all these dots on the, a map. And uh, yeah, it was really fun. So um, uh, and just I guess before we say goodbye, uh, I do like to figure out what apps you tend to use. Uh, obviously, we've spoken a bit about Inky, but you, you're, um, I guess you've got an iPhone. Uh, what uh, what apps do you think you could recommend? Any one or two apps that you use in your day that you think would be good to share with the Appster tribe? I'm sure it's kind of controversial, but I use the Amazon app a ton. I end up buying so much stuff on Amazon, and I think it's just so incredibly cool that you can buy something and it's not just them who do this obviously you can do this sort of thing on the other apps too but you buy something and then it shows up the next day and and actually what i found is i guess because i'm in some maybe i have some bit set in my profile with amazon because i buy ridiculous amounts of stuff from them but a lot of times i get it the same day wow without even paying that's amazing even paying for shipping so you're not getting that drone service already are you dave not yet no but something's getting into my house in a day so (laughs) i mean we're in a metro area, so but we're not, you know, we're not in Manhattan, so it's not like it's it's that sort of thing. Yeah, I believe but, Amazon uh, uh, read today that they're in a war with um, Time Warner, maybe. Uh, that the- yeah, it's hard to it's hard to like them because they're just so they're just so fussy with with all their vendors, and they just get in these fights. But you know, I I, I think that they they do exemplify something which is important, which is that there's this whole infrastructure behind any successful app like that. There's a service delivery. There's a logistics component, um, and you know just the fact that you can you can buy pretty much any product. I mean, you should you can buy absolutely anything on Amazon now. It's just ridiculous what you can buy on there, and it'll get to you in a day or two. Yeah, I think that uh, someone bought a gun through Amazon, and I think that was a mistaken just, delivery. It was like in the news. <laughs> absolutely unbelievable the degree to which this has changed in the last ten years. <laughs> I mean, think about it, right? If you didn't live in a major city and you wanted to buy something obscure, you're going to have to, you know, maybe they have a website, but probably you're going to have to call somebody, tell them what it is, and then wait two weeks. Yeah, they've, they've disrupted the whole way we uh, we consume things. Uh, Dave, this is been a joy i honestly could talk to you uh, forever you sound like you've got just a fascinating journey you've inspired me uh, with your story and 
Uh, I am t- t- uh, totally uh, in awe of what you've done. Uh, is there any way uh, you could give us the, the best way of reaching out to you? Because I no doubt the Abstract tribes li- listening to you have uh, been inspired as well. So how best can we reach out and connect with you? Sure. On Twitter, I'm at DM Baggett, which is D as in David, M as in Michael, B as in boy, A-G-G-E-T-T, DM Baggett. Um, I'm on Quora. That's a great place to ask questions if you have questions, because I typically will answer. If someone asks me something that I know the answer, I'll typically answer it. Uh, and then you can email me. I'm dmb at inky.com. Happy to take uh, questions and email too. Dave, well, best of luck. Uh, you're welcome back anytime. And uh, I know that you've just built uh, an awesome app and it's a, a justified uh, mission that you're on to, to to change the way we think about email because uh, it, uh, no doubt everybody listening it's one of the biggest bugbears that we have in our life uh, that we just get too many emails and uh, now with the iphone <laughs> it's notifications galore and so uh, thanks for doing that for the world um, best of luck and, uh, and have a great uh, a great time with inky thanks and i'm happy to come back for episode 200 if you want <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're getting there aren't we? you just let me know <laughs> wonderful thanks dave you take care thanks Thank you for listening to this podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode. If you want to be a guest on the show or suggest someone, then please send an email to info at onemob.com. The App Guy Podcast. <laughs>